Welcome to today's conversation in our Collaborative Transformation Podcast Series, Driving the Deal, Focus on Private Equity Investments in Healthcare and Life Sciences. My name is Chris Worling, and I serve as co-chair of McDermott's Global Private Equity Practice. I represent private equity funds that are focused on investing in the healthcare and life sciences industry. Our team advises clients throughout the life cycle of an investment, from leading the initial acquisition to serving as trusted counsel for the portfolio company's ongoing business and eventual sale. McDermott's healthcare private equity team brings deep industry expertise to our private equity clients that are investing in the healthcare industry. And we have been recognized as the top healthcare private equity law firm in the United States. As a result, we interact regularly with other leaders from across the industry. In this podcast series, I'm excited to bring you into these conversations so you can hear firsthand from some of the key figures across healthcare private equity. I'm joined today by one such leader, Jeff Woods. As co-head of the healthcare practice for EY Parthenon, Jeff has more than a decade of consulting experience in healthcare, including due diligence and portfolio work for private equity clients. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks for having me. So I know before we dive into some interesting healthcare insights that you are an avid skier, how has the snow been treating you this uh, winter? Uh, it's actually been pretty good. We go up to Vermont for a mile. And so uh, I'll probably get 30, 35 days this year. And it's, it's been good. Uh, we had a, a, a milestone. Our family skied a million vertical feet last week, actually. So that, that's, we keep track of that now. So that's always, that's always the, uh, the, the high water mark for how good the skiing's been. So it's been, at least there's been a lot of it. Hey, outdoor activities are uh, the most popular thing in the world right now. So uh, skiing's a great one. So Jeff, we have a lot to talk about and we go way back. Um, always enjoy hearing uh, you know, from you and your colleagues about some of the macro trends that are impacting the healthcare market, because many of those trends are things that our mutual investor clients, uh, private equity funds are thinking about as they put together their investment uh, theses in this space. So, um, you know, I thought, you know, one interesting thing I read about last year was that um, the U.S. national healthcare spending shrank for the first time in 60 years. Uh, what happened? I hope you read that for me because that sounds like a uh, something from from our, some of the work that we've done. This is fascinating, and he said that this has really never happened before. Um, really, they don't check that data past 60 years. But you saw healthcare contract, and again, that's coming off a base of 3.8 trillion dollars. It's been growing at four to six percent for. You know, for, for as long as you know, the last decade or so, and really, you know, we've never seen healthcare cycle, especially in an economy. I mean, healthcare was always billed as being recession-proof or recession-resistant, and uh, I think what we saw here was that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, you know, kind of the reason why that happened uh, was a little bit of a, a kind of a one-two punch. I mean, you had all the economic conditions that do kind of lower healthcare expenditures, so loss of employment, loss of insurance, uh, less disposable income. Uh, all those factors that do weigh in, typically even in a recession, but aren't big enough to drive the expenditures negative. And the real big kicker here was just, we call it social distancing, but really it was the inability to access the healthcare system, whether that was you know, lack of PPE, fear, or just cannily, uh, you know, a lot of the facilities weren't open or weren't able to do the procedures that they typically do. So we actually did see that that, that contraction, and that's, uh, that is an anomaly in our, in our healthcare spending. And 
Candidly, I, if I were a betting person, I'd probably say that won't happen again, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. And I even put put decades on that uh, on that bet. So the question is, did all that spending, is that just going to push into 2021? So our current model says more yes than no on that. And so, you know, we're going to contract our healthcare expenditures probably three and a half percent in 2020. So that's, you know, we're going to be down from typically a growth rate of 5%. We're going to go negative three and a half. Our forecast for 2021 is north of 10. It's actually 12 to 13%. So that is an enormous pickup in spending, especially when you consider that base was, you know, in the $3.8 trillion range, it's going to shrink to 3.6 and then go back up. So the short answer is yes, there is pent up demand. There is also disposable income. All the things I kind of rattled off on, on that previous on why we went down, all those are going to go now head in the right direction. And I think probably the biggest variable here that did feels to be coming back in a strong way is um, is the consumer themselves. And, you know, so part of the reason we saw this decline is, you know, from some of the survey data, people just didn't want to access the healthcare system in, you know, in Q2 and Q3. They were just afraid as of, you know, even personally, I didn't, didn't go to the dentist, cancel all the, you know, the, the doctor's appointments. And there is a little bit of pent up demand on that. I mean, some of it goes away, you know, does that dental cleaning that you miss get compounded into two dental, dental visits? Like probably not, but I do think on the whole, a lot of this deferred, consumption of healthcare services are going to come back and come back in a very, very healthy way starting this year. So you are one of the few people I know who is well known for a slide. <laughs> and unfortunately, we're in a podcast format here, so I can't show the slide. But I think many of our listeners will be familiar with your slide that shows the breakdown of national healthcare expenditures among all of the different subsectors. <laughs> and that's one that you lovingly update regularly. Which of those, I assume we saw, in addition to, to that overall decrease, we saw a you know pushing of expenditures a little bit around. Where did things move in your, your master slide of health, national healthcare expenditures? In general, almost everything in healthcare got hit negatively. And there, there's a handful of sectors that I, I'll talk about maybe in a little bit here that, that did were favorable. But in general, everything moved down in Q2. Our, in aggregate, our, our kind of our national health expenditures went down about 20 to 25%. So it's kind of that, you know, if you default that everything went down by that much, you're probably more right than wrong. Um, you know, I did think we saw hospitals cycle a little harder than that. Um, again, there was a lot of geographic variability on that, but we did see that. Really, it was the physicians and the ambulatory visits that really took it on the chin. Um, you know, we saw them down, you know, kind of the third, fourth week of March, you know, down 50 to 60% in aggregate. So even underneath that, you had different specialties cycling harder than others. Dental really took a, you know, a, a pretty significant drop, as did all, you know, like any provider group. So I think in general, that's where you saw a lot of it, you know, really, really kind of impact. You know, there were a couple sectors that actually did better. I mean, payers in general did a little bit better there. Again, the, the, the lack of utilization we saw on the provider side was offset by, you know, kind of better MLR or better just, you know, uh, kind of a lack of expenditures on the payer side. And that's not just insurers. I mean, that's self-funded employers. That's, um, you know, risk-based physician groups. You know, we saw that, that that was sort of where that offset was. But in general, there was a lot of actually shaded that slide that you referred to by, you know, various shades of red. And there was a lot of red on that chart relative to what to what we typically expect. And it's typically, you know, defaulting end of, to 4 to 5% growth on most of those sub-segments of healthcare. What do you think we got wrong about COVID? You know, we did a lot of prognosticating back in late March, April about, you know, the impact at that point, 
I remember telling my wife we'd be back to work in three weeks. That was clearly wrong. <laughs> but what about the healthcare system? Can you think back about some of those early predictions that that were were pretty off? Yeah, it is interesting. Almost you know a year, almost a you know year to the date, almost of 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 some of those those impacts and and what we thought was going to happen. You know, I think personally. Uh, I agree. I, I think at the early onset, the first week or two, I thought it was like, this is going to be short-lived and, and we'll kind of get around this. And I think kind of when the greater reality set in, you know, Kenley, I think we actually overcorrected, or at least, uh, you know, we're Kenley more pessimistic about the overall impacts. You know, I'll say that from a macro perspective doing, you know, just working with our economists on, on a lot of the modeling. I mean, the the models we put together in March and April uh, based on all the available data. And again, that was, just, you know, we don't really have a model for predicting a global pandemic, um, you know, had the, you know, the overall GDP going down by 10%. Uh, I think that number will probably be more like 3%, 3.5% in aggregate for the, you know, the, the $21 trillion of, of um, aggregate U.S. GDP. Every month that we got more data, it, it got better and the forecast got, you know, improved slightly. So I think it, it, in some case that that was, that was probably a big one. You know, the other thing that I, you know, I think noticeable from a healthcare perspective is, you know, with the, the peak of the unemployment rate, about 15%, we were expecting sort of mass dislocation of, of insurance, specifically commercial insurance folks going into Medicaid, uninsured, and some of the exchanges. And I think that phenomenon has been largely muted. It has happened. I think, you know, the, the Medicaid ranks have probably swelled by, you know, call it five to six million across the country, which is real. But, you know, when we were talking about dislocations of 20 million, 30 million, I think there was you know, some, some press out there that had that number even higher. I think that's something that didn't happen. And, and you know, the, there's been a sharp improvement in the labor market. The unemployment rate has improved dramatically. I mean, we're below 7%. And in such a short period of time relative to other recessions, I mean, the Great Recession took six, seven years to get back to kind of the, the unemployment rate going in. And we're probably going to do that in, you know, the matter of, it won't get fully back to, you know, pre-COVID levels, but, you know, currently within, within a year. So, that's been the one, the stickiness that I, I don't think we anticipated and got exactly right going in. And that is a good thing for healthcare. And that's a good thing for our healthcare spending. So let's talk about what private equity investors are looking at now. You know, some investors who bought an urgent care chain uh, in 2019 look pretty great right now <laughs> and are very happy given the volumes there. Are you seeing a rush into any type of subsectors that are that are going to do well post-COVID? Yeah, I think urgent care is probably the poster child of that. And what's been so interesting about the urgent care is just seeing, I mean, that industry got hit just as hard as anybody, any other ones did from a provider in March and April. And how fast that industry has responded, how quickly they got their operating models together to do not only the testing, but also just to see patients has been remarkable. You know, there's been some data that says that that industry is probably 60%, uh, at least as of the summer. And I think... Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that's up even greater than that. So that that is one for sure that I think has seen some resilience here and, and will benefit from that. And Kenley, I will just say also with urgent care, you know, the top 20% of urgent care businesses actually improved, got to back to kind of baseline faster and actually expanded quicker than the overall market. So there was a little bit of the good getting better uh, with that. But I do think, you know, one of the areas that I think has been enabled by COVID or at least have seen is just the, you know, the onset of, of kind of the risk-bearing provider and, you know, I think an average, you know, on the average provider is not fully adequate or is woefully inadequate generally to deal with risk. And I think we've seen a bunch of models that have been doing this, smaller assets that have been doing this, you know, kind of underneath the radar, or at least, you know, not, you know, not of any scale, 
that became very, very attractive to investors during this. And um, you know, I think there's sort of a secular trend of that becoming more popular, more favorable, you know, a lot of reasons why that should continue. But I really think it was COVID that actually sort of highlighted a lot of these businesses that actually do pretty well, ironically, when, you know, when utilization goes down, whether that's from a pandemic or from really good medical management and, and properly treating patients. But uh, I think that's those are areas that I would highlight. And then lastly, I, I do think the the healthcare IT was sort of the bright spot from a deal perspective volume throughout 2020. I think that was probably the one sector that actually held very well. Whether it was COVID-related or not, you know, I think people did say, or at least saw that there is some enablement of technology that can really be used to make either delivery of care more efficient or just enable care delivery where it couldn't be, I, you know, telehealth, et cetera. So I do think that that's, you know, Kaling, where we're seeing a lot of activity right now. Let me play devil's advocate on the risk-bearing practices and the primary care. Is some of that activity that we're seeing now, I know there's a number of potential transactions out there in the market. Is that just opportunistic maybe based on the fact that they made so much money on their contracts and provided so little care in 2020 and they're showing high EBITDA or is that a true trend that's going to stick? I think it's a trend that's going to stick. Part of why I say that, you know, I, true, we did have this aberration where, you know, I think there was a temporary windfall for those. I think it's more on the thesis of, you know, with more Medicare Advantage folks coming in, you know, one out of two people that are aging into Medicare are going to Medicare Advantage. I think there's this natural ability to cater to that population under an MA and take delegated risk. You know, I think those populations are chronic, you know, I think trying to do that on the commercial side is a little bit harder because you've got, you know, episodes, acute episodes that happen and they're hard to predict. I think with that population in particular, the greater than 65 in an MA, I think that the conditions are kind of ripe where you could have a provider that's actually delivering, you know, very, very good care in a risk-based manner. I think, Kennedy, a lot of the MA plans would, you know, I think delegating risk to a provider that can do it, I think is, you know, is, is, I think they like doing that. I think that's probably a good arrangement for them if they can find the right um, the provi- right provider that can handle that risk. Yeah. Sticking on the physician practice discussion, and your team does a great job at tracking different kind of penetration of private equity platforms among different specialties. And, you know, I know we're, you know, a little over 10% penetration in dermatology, you know, right around 10% in dental it seems that we're in the early days of private equity activity in some of the other more surgical specialties like urology, uh, gastroenterology, and so forth. Is COVID going to accelerate further private equity activity in some of those surgical specialty uh, PPMs? So, Chris, I, I do think that those specialties are going to see more private equity investment. Um, whether that's attributed to COVID or not, I think it's probably debatable. But you know, I think if we look at some of these other subsegments like dental, which Canley has probably had 10 to 15 years worth of private equity investment, I think private equity has gotten comfortable with, you know, with, with a lot of those uh, healthcare delivery businesses. And you know, Canley, a lot of them seem a little bit more like retail businesses with the floral economics and the marketing and site selection, et cetera. So I think that's kind of why we've seen the investment where we have. I do think you know there's going to be a natural progression into some of those surgical specialties and some of those other categories. Whether that's you know enabled by COVID or not, it's probably debatable. I will say COVID probably has had the benefit, or at least you know the impact of making a lot of mom and pop or you know single one to three practitioners 
probably look a little bit more closely at affiliating with a larger scale practice. I, you know, I think we have this underlying thesis of a, a flight to safety of a lot of the physician groups having undergone, you know, a full year where there's been some crazy ups and downs and, you know, how does he run this business? I could see that there's a natural kind of evolution where, you know, some of those folks that were really interested in having a, you know, hanging a shingle and doing their own thing may kind of turn the corner a little bit and affiliate with some larger practices. So I do think that will benefit not only the surgical specialties, but all the other subspecialties that have been already previously invested in by private equity. Yeah, that makes sense. And the other big impact of COVID that many of us saw was, you know, consumers starting to access digital healthcare, you know, virtual care, the most basic being having a virtual visit with your primary care physician which I had a couple of weeks ago with mine instead of going into the office. And that was my first time ever doing a virtual visit with my primary care. How much of that do you think will stick around? And is this the kind of kick in the pants that, that digital healthcare really needed to get consumer adoption? I really, really hope so. Because I, I think some of the structural barriers we have with our healthcare system, so many of them have to deal with access to care. And, you know, just sort of the variation in the, in the supply of physicians and the supply of healthcare delivery. So I do think that telehealth is here to stay. I think anybody that's used it, I, I, you know, I do think for many, many conditions, it is, it is a better way to practice medicine or a better way to, to receive uh, healthcare. And that's not for every condition, but I, I do think that that's going to be enabled by this. Uh, there's a large hospital system here in Boston that, you know, they said they went from 2,000 visits, I think, in February to 90,000 in April. CEO basically said, look, we just fast forward our telehealth program ahead by five to six years in a way that we never thought was possible. And, you know, thankfully, we're able to keep up with, the, with that volume, that demand. But I do think that that's here to stay. I think it will be interesting from a regulatory and a policy perspective, just where does that steady state for telehealth sit? You know, is it 10 to 15 percent of visits? You know, I think there was certain specialties that peaked almost like 25 percent. Behavioral health was, I think, it was close to 40 percent. And that has persisted. So, I think it's it's not going to be the majority of visits, but I do think there is a role for that and a role that will, will make sense. And Kennelly, I think, will, will open up the system in, in ways that will be very helpful. I, I will say just on technology, similar to your, your physician visit, I had you know routine blood drawn, blood work drawn, and you know going into the lab, using a QR scanner to get in the waiting line, waiting outside, having a text message to say to walk in, spending less than 30 seconds in the waiting room and, and going right in to get, I mean, that is a, an advancement that is awesome. I, I think, I mean, I hope that that sticks. And I think we're going to see pockets of that in spades over and over and over again, where, you know, some of the things that we had to work around for COVID have actually made the practice more efficient and just better. So uh, I'm actually optimistic about the way that that's going to unfold for our healthcare system. It's absolutely getting better for us as consumers. There, there's no doubt there. Um, how about the impact of virtual care and some of these new digital tools on what employers are doing to kind of constrain their spending on healthcare and try to manage some of their employee health? Are employers kind of getting uh, focused on this? Yeah, no, you know, this is not necessarily a new industry, new phenomenon. I think we've, we've had employers very kind of engaged. Um, and it seems to ebb and flow. And I can't, I think where it really starts picking up steam is when we have, you know, a, a sharp acceleration of our health insurance premiums. I think that kind of opens up the eyes of the, the employers, especially the self-funded employers, really thinking about, you know, how, what can they do to curtail spend? So, you know, we've seen that in the most basic forms of, hey, you know, our employee assistant programs, like revamping that and a little bit more emphasis on what that looks like all the way through to, you know, very 
kind of innovative models with, you know, concierge and, and navigation throughout the healthcare system, uh, or at least the health policies and the health insurance that a given employer is offering. So I do think there's been a renewed focus on that. I think there will continue to be a renewed focus on that. And I think what's so interesting about this period is, you know, we're starting to see, as you said, digital enablement. I mean, the part of the problem with a lot of these programs is just the participation amongst employees is so low. You know, EAP, you know, two to 3% of employees actually use that. But if you can use digital to enable that or extend that, I think that's where a lot of folks are going to be very, very interested. You know, I, there's a whole, you know, slew of businesses that are, they're looking at this. There's, you know, there's even a digital therapeutics category where you're starting to use you know, technology in ways that has just never been used before in healthcare. So I think it's a very, very exciting time. And I, I do think the, Ken, I think the self-funded employer is going to be one of the catalysts to a lot of that adoption. They have all the incentives in the world to, to make those things work. So we've talked about a couple of the obvious areas that have been impacted you know, post-COVID in our health system. What are some areas that, that you and some of our mutual investor clients are looking at that you wouldn't you wouldn't be thinking wouldn't be top of mind as changing post COVID and in 2021. Yeah, I think that we're going to see kind of a, a lot of changes across the board. I think you know one of the interesting things is just you know within kind of the pharmacy and pharmacy services. I think we've seen a lot of private equity, equity firms that traditionally shied from that are now starting to look at that as you know potential investment opportunities and not taking binary risk on a molecule, but more so. You know, are there ways that can be more efficient in terms of the workflow within a pharmacy? I think we've seen the clinical whole clinical trial space have to pivot really hard and respond very, very much so during COVID of just not being able to get folks into trials. And so I think we've seen a lot of data, technology, virtual trials coming up and just ways to be more efficient about that that I think are here to stay. And then similarly on the on the consumer front, you know, I think we've seen a lot of software and technology aimed at, you know, Meta-adherence, getting folks their drugs in ways that they haven't before in more efficient manners, and trying to keep people kind of at least on their scripts and, and filling them in ways that technology is hopefully helping that. So I think there's a bunch of those that are here to stay and a bunch that are coming down the pike. How about hospitals? You know, hospitals were obviously front lines, you know, you know, evening news material throughout. April, May, June, and even still today, as we sit here in the first quarter of 2021, what are some of the long-term impacts on hospitals and hospital systems in our country? And where are kind of hospital CEOs thinking about investing capital going forward? Yeah, that's a very nuanced uh, question because I, I think hospitals really took it on the chin during COVID. Uh, I'll just go out on a limb and say, you know, when volumes go way down, and we can track some of the volumes you know, down 30%, you know, in, in Q2. The volumes have come back. I think anecdotally we've heard is the mix has slightly been slightly less favorable in terms of um, you know, procedure mix. So I think the, the overall profitability would be down. Yeah, and they've lost they've lost some of the elective hip procedures and, and knee procedures where they were really making margin, right? Yep, for sure. And so what we have seen in prior recessions with hospitals is you know, not only did the volume go down what we had here, but also, you know, endowments and non-operating income also go down as well. So I think that phenomenon probably is, is less muted here just with, with the equity or sort of the stock markets and, and some of the endowments, but that was always a risk. I think the average hospital now, you know, my sense is, is probably going to be on the sidelines for making big capital investments. I, I think from a kind of a, a private equity, a PPM perspective, feels like hospitals are always sort of the cover bid or a lot of times buying up a lot of these practices. I think there's going to be a period now for 12 to 18 months where hospitals are probably going to be more concerned with 
return to work, return to procedure volumes, and less concerned with what their M&A activity is going to be, at least from uh, you know stretching out their outpatient footprint or acquiring practices. There's probably a second order effect here. You know, typically we see you know some consolidation post recession when when just you know you, you get to very dire straits financially. I don't know if we're going to see a wave of that, but it wouldn't surprise me if we see a pickup in some of the M and A activity. And then lastly, you know, I, I have to think that you know a hospital looking three to five years out is probably talking about real estate footprint. You know, how big do they need to be? Are there ways that they can, you know, that they have flexed down during COVID that, you know, maybe is a more efficient way to run? So I'm sure there's very interesting and, and, you know, strategic questions for a lot of those providers, but that's kind of where my head would be if I were running a hospital or health system. The EY Parthenon team you work with is a large group and has a lot of exposure to different investors. Are you seeing, just from in your flow, are you seeing increased interest in healthcare maybe from some funds that have have not historically invested in the healthcare market right now? I would say that we've seen, from a private equity perspective, I'd say it's been pretty consistent. I don't think we've seen a bunch of private equity firms that have flexed in that you know never did healthcare. I, maybe on, this, on the margin, I think we've seen some technology-focused funds that are trying to get exposure to healthcare, healthcare IT. I think, I think that's probably where we've seen that. I would say more, probably more interesting has been, you know, some of the, our corporate clients that are kind of on the fray of healthcare or on the fray of technology that are, you know, asking us a little bit more pointed questions about specific aspects of healthcare, whether that's remote monitoring or, you know, is there ability to, to take a service, you know, a, a, a transportation service and apply it in a different way in healthcare. So I think that's kind of where we've seen a lot of the interest but you know, I, I think we probably would have seen more of that if healthcare hadn't flexed down in the recession. I think that's kind of where a lot of folks say, "Hey, let's get more exposure to healthcare because it's got you know it, it's sort of counter cyclical, or at least it does it doesn't cycle as hard as some of these others." And kind of that just didn't happen in in the last year. So I, I would say that that COVID phenomenon probably hasn't pushed a lot of folks our, our direction looking to healthcare, other than the technology vendors. And our healthcare investors that you're talking with are they? focused on some of these macro trends we've just discussed, or are they still, you know, kind of trading on and making investments based on kind of the the, the same consolidation case and need for capital investment that, that they've been investing on for the last five to 10 years? I think it's been a little bit of both. And, you know, the sort of the, the playbook of consolidating a fragmented healthcare market you know, I kind of think COVID may have enabled that one, you know, kind of that flight to safety that I referenced earlier. But also, I think, you know, a lot of those sectors got really frothy from a valuation perspective. And I, I think COVID may, you know, kind of reset some of that. At least I hope it resets a little bit of that. So I do think folks that have done the kind of the traditional model are, are still looking for where else that may work. And, you know, kind of maybe a slightly easier environment from an M&A perspective or inorganic growth strategy to continue doing that. And then, you know, I do think that there's other folks that are, you know, kind of just saying like, hey, is, is there sort of transformational stuff going on in the healthcare system, secular trends are going to be enabled three to five years from now that, you know, th- that are investable businesses today. And, um, you know, I, I think that, I, you know, it, it's interesting that we've gone through just this really intense period of disruption in healthcare kind of across the board. And, you know, I think a lot of folks look at that and say, look, if this is sort of a once in a decade or, you know, once in a generation chance to, to try to transform some stuff that has been very slow to move. And I think people are looking at that as an attractive place to at least be deploying capital or thinking about deploying capital. It's certain that the next five years is going to be a fascinating time in healthcare. I know <laughs> that's one thing I think we can all count on. 
Well, Jeff, I feel like I say that every year, Craig. Like this is going to be yeah. really interesting. And, and sure enough, you know, over the course of twenty years of doing being healthcare, it seems like I every year gets to be more interesting than, than the prior. Completely agree, Jeff. Thanks for being with us today. Where can our listeners uh, reach you? Give us your uh, email contact info. Thanks, Chris. The email is Jeff J E F F dot Woods W O O D S at Parthenon P A R T H E N O N Well, thanks so much for listening. For more insight and analysis about healthcare private equity investments and today's changing healthcare and life sciences private equity transactions landscape, check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Sciences News blog at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.